Thanks to last week's big coronation in the UK, we have been hearing a lot about the real royals lately. But on episode 244, my guest and I take it back to the royal that was arguably the most important to us when we were kids, even if she was fictional. I'm talking about Mia Thermopolis, the princess of Genovia, who has only recently been informed that she's the princess of Genovia. It's been almost five years since we talked about Mia on the show. My conversation with my friend Haley about the first book in the Princess Diaries series was the second episode ever of the podcast. Now, we jump back into the trials and tribulations of Mia's angsty teenage life with a discussion about the follow-up to the Princess Diaries, Princess in the Spotlight. Princess in the Spotlight was published in 2001 and was written, of course, by friend of the podcast, Meg Cabot. In this novel, Mia continues to adjust to life in the public eye. Her grandmother is forcing her to participate in big, scary national TV interviews, which she totally didn't ask for. But then there are the normal high school stresses too. Drama with her best friend Lily, her crush on Lily's brother Michael, annoying homework assignments, and the mysterious secret admirer who has been sending her messages via IM. Also, her mom is pregnant and engaged to her teacher, which is as awkward as you might expect it to be. Stick around for the next hour as my guest and I talk our way through this next installment of Mia's diary entries. We touch on beauty standards, our complicated feelings about Lily and Mia's mom, sex talks, sick days, and the pressures of having a platform. We also explore a theory about Mia being the original bullet journaler and get sentimental thinking about some of our core reading memories. My guest this week is India Hill Brown. India is an author with a passion for writing, reading, and all things literary. Her debut novel, The Forgotten Girl, has been nominated for an NAACP Image Award for Outstanding Literary Work in Youth Teens and was named a 2020 ALSC Notable Children's Book. Her latest book, Rhythm and Muse, hit shelves on May 30th. India graduated from Claflin University with a bachelor's degree in mass communications and with a concentration in print journalism. In her spare time, she can be found curling up with a good book, a hot drink, and a snack. A self-proclaimed Southern Belle, she lives in the Carolinas with her husband and two sons. I had so much fun chatting with India, and I'm grateful that she took the time to record this episode with me. If you are also grateful for the generosity of India and other SSR guests, I would welcome your support for the show in a couple of ways. When prospective guests can see how amazing and supportive our listener community is, they get that much more excited to be on the show. The best thing you can do is to make sure that you're subscribed to and or following the SSR podcast wherever you listen to your favorite shows. The next best thing you can do is leave a five-star rating or review. Here are a few other suggestions for SSR fans who want to show a little extra love. You can shop for SSR merch, including our brand new purple baseball caps and our much-loved bookmarks and tote bags at www.ssrpodcast.com shop. You can share this episode to your Instagram story. While you're there, tag me on Instagram at SSRpod and make sure you're following me there so that you don't miss anything behind the scenes. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter at SSRpod and on Facebook when you search the SSR podcast or the SSR book club. Become an SSR patron for as little as $1 per month. I'll let you check out all of the cool perks that are up for grabs for people who do, but trust me when I tell you that they're pretty awesome. Get the details and get involved at www.patreon.com slash SSRpodcast. A big thanks goes out to all of the SSR Patreon members listening to this episode now. Episode 244 is brought to you by the AHK Podcast Primer. 
If you've ever wanted to start a podcast, this 14-page bundle will help you get there. It walks you through every step of the strategy I developed when I launched SSR back in 2018, with some updated insights too. I am totally self-taught in every aspect of podcasting, but I want to save you some time, which is why I created the AHK Podcast Primer. For $89.99, you will get the Podcast Primer as well as a 30-minute one-on-one session with me to help you get your plan together. Get it at ahkstorytelling.com slash in-your-earbuds. You can also get it at the link in SSR's Instagram bio. Feel free to DM me if you have any questions. Find your next great audiobook at Libro.fm. That's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M. And use code SSRpodcast when prompted to get a two-month audiobook membership for the price of just one month. Libro.fm is a great place to buy audiobooks because it supports indie booksellers instead of giant corporations. The audiobooks you buy there will sound and cost the same as the ones you buy from the big guys. I recently got a copy of Andy Cohen's latest book on Libro.fm, and I am loving hearing him read it himself. Now let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hofkosik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, India. Welcome to SSR. Hi, how are you? I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to be here too. We are talking about Princess in the Spotlight, which is the second book in the Princess Diaries series. And this is a little bit of like a nostalgic moment for me for a few reasons. I mean, first of all, it's Princess Diaries. So hello, nostalgia. But also the episode that we recorded about the original Princess Diaries book was actually the second episode that I ever recorded of the podcast almost five years ago. Yeah, and so I have not gone back to listen to it because I'm kind of afraid because I was a baby (laughs) podcaster, but I do remember that I was like a little bit harsh toward the book and to Mia specifically, so I'm kind of anxious to see how that conversation develops today. And I also have been lucky enough to have Meg Cabot on the podcast since then. Oh my goodness. Yeah, she was on the podcast a few months ago. Um, Meg, if you're listening, hi. Thank you for writing (laughs) these books. And so, yeah, I feel like we're in a real Meg Cabot Princess Diaries moment. She just had a new Princess Diaries book come out. So, yeah, it's like all Mia all the time. Awesome. Awesome. Yes, I loved Princess Diaries ever since I was a little girl. It's so funny, actually, because like around Valentine's Day, I was like talking to my husband about Princess Diaries, the first like book and movie, and he never heard of it. And I was like, what? Where have you been? <laughs> I was like, we have to watch this movie now. And so we watched it. We went back and watched the movie. And it's so funny because it was like a little bit even before you reached out about the podcast. I was like, oh, this is like perfect. I have to read Princess in the Spotlight. And when I was a little girl, the Princess Diaries, like books, they were the books that I would sit in bed on a rainy day and I could read it throughout the entire, like I would read it for like hours, hours, hours. Like my intention span was so like great back then in middle school. Like I could just literally sit in the bed and read for hours and hours. So it's like, that's one of my core memories of the books, like just sitting and reading for hours and hours and hours, like in one sitting, I could read the whole book. 
Yeah, if only we still had that attention span. Yes, and also and the time. time. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking about that the other day. I'm in a little bit of a reading slump right now, which is always such a bummer. And I was like, why can't I be that version of me that just used to sit and like have their undivided attention for hours on end right. and just read a book? So I totally resonate with that. So you did read the whole series when you were a kid? Yes, I did. Well, every book that was out when I was like in middle school and high school. And then I read a, like I read some of her other books as well. Like, I yeah. think one was called, like, All-American Girl or something. I yeah. Remember. Yeah, I read, like, those as well. Yeah, we covered All-American Girl on the podcast, and then there was a sequel to All-American Girl called Ready or Not. And listeners, I'll link to all of those episodes in the show notes um, if you haven't checked them out yet. But, yeah, it's – Meg Cabot has, like, all of these other series. Do you remember what it was about Princess Diaries that you loved so much? Like, were there things about Mia that you really connected with? Yeah, so for me, I've always loved one princess books and two like books that were like shaped like a diary, like I'm reading someone's diary. So it was just the combination of both that I really, really liked. Like I love like the diary entries and that format is something I've always loved ever since I was a little girl and obviously princess stuff. So I love like that concept. And then for Mia... It was more of a story. I don't really feel like I necessarily connected to Mia in like a really like I really couldn't relate to her in a lot of ways. Um, the only thing that I really could relate to her about when I was reading the story back then is that how she always talked about like she was underdeveloped and she didn't have boobs and stuff like that. Because <laughs> yeah. I really I did really feel that growing up, especially like living in the South, like I feel like the focus in the South, I feel like back then, you know, like in mainstream media, I feel like the beauty standard quote-unquote was to be like tall and slim which I feel like Mia was but in the south I feel like the beauty standard has always been to be more curvaceous and so I was not that and I also felt like I didn't have like boobs and stuff like that so I always felt underdeveloped but in a different way than Mia did because I feel like she was tall and slim like she always talks about that well I think it's just a testament too to like the changing beauty standards and how we when we're teenagers like so don't appreciate things that make us awkward because often the things that make us feel awkward are actually the things that are beautiful about us yes Um, I mean I'm five too and like I wish that I could be tall and (laughs) like Mia but I think we all want what we can't have like that's the sad truth which is a shame but yeah I think the other thing that struck me so much when I read the first book all those years ago um again you know I of course read them when I was a kid too but when I reread the first book and then again with Princess in the Spotlight it struck me how different the book universe is from the movie universe yes. and also how different book Mia is from movie Mia yes. and I think the movie became so the movie was so all-encompassing and the movie really just like took over kid pop culture for a little while and Anne Hathaway was like everything yes. and I just adored the movie and watched it over and over and over again and often on the podcast like I'll try to stay away from talking about a movie adaptation but I think it's hard with the Princess Diaries just because it's such a big movie and you kind of can't help but compare. So I was doing a lot of that. Did you find yourself doing that mental comparing when you're reading this book? Yes. And like you, I also felt like book Mia is definitely different than Mia in the movie. For me, I feel like she was a lot more layered in the book. I feel like she knew what was right. And she was actually very like aware of like, what is the word? She was actually like really aware of like cultural events and things like that. But I feel like you kind of get that in the movie, but I feel like in the movie it was more like, oh, she's like geeky. Now she's not geeky. 
And I feel like in the, she had a little bit more, I guess, a little bit more spunk in the book, in my opinion. And I also feel like for the book and the movie, Lily, her best friend, I always felt like she was so mean to Mia. Like, I felt like that for both. <laughs> so that was something that stayed the same. Lily is kind of the worst. Yeah, she is the worst. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't know why Mia is friends with her. In the movie, she is like surly and snarky and that's like kind of her character but it makes a little bit more sense to me in the movie in the book I'm like why are you friends with her she's so mean to you yeah she's mean she's self-righteous and I feel like she's like she feels like she's smarter than everyone and like you said it makes more sense in the movie but in the book she's so mean to Mia so mean the other thing that I kind of forgot about with this book and I I think that the rest of the series sort of like follows this pattern book two picks up right when book one ends and I feel like that's not an experience that I get very often anymore reading series like either a series intended for adults or a series that I come back to for the podcast for kids like mm-hmm. these books were published really quickly within a year of each other also mm-hmm. I was looking at the timeline and this book came out I think two months after the movie released in theaters Oh, wow. And so it did bring me back to like, I think that I saw the movie and then I realized that it was a book. Like it was one of those really exciting moments as a bookish kid where I saw a movie that I loved and then I was like, oh, I can read the book. And then I realized that there was already a second one out. So like the timing was really cool. But even within the universe of like the actual fictional book, we are getting back into Mia's head. Like I think two months after she's learned this news that she's a princess. So it's all like happening very quickly. Yes. And the fact that Meg Cabot manages to put so much, like so many weeks worth of, it feels like there's so much in these books, but it's really only over a short period of weeks. Mm -hmm. And it's a reminder of like how much you feel like you're dealing with in high school, because the fact that she can fill this many pages with just like the basic ins and outs of Mia's days, like that is how I felt when I was a teenager. Like I was like the boring things that I'm doing could fill pages and pages. Yes, yes, exactly. And I feel like with Mia, her situation is so unique because it's like she really does have a lot of big things going on. Like she just became, found out she's a princess and her mom is pregnant by her algebra teacher, which her mom, oh my gosh, her mom gets on my nerves a little bit too. Yeah. Well, I'll get into that. But I feel like Mia has a lot. (laughs) We have thoughts. (laughs) Yeah, I have thoughts. Mia has a lot going on, like a lot of big things, but she also has a lot of like, you know, normal high school things going on, like crushes. And she's feeling like ultra embarrassed over things that aren't really a big deal, but feel like a big deal. Like she's learning how like she relates to the world and how everything like affects her. So I feel like she has a lot going on. So she has like mundane things and actually really huge things happening. And so it's like, it just makes for like really good diary entries. Cause like one page is like, oh, I'm the princess. I need to go to like this ball and this wedding and things like that. And the next page is like, I embarrass myself in front of my teacher. So it's like, she just has a lot going on. She has a lot going on. And I think Meg Cabot's sort of big picture did a couple as usual, very smart things um, that I wanted to call out. And the first is that Mia kind of has like a dual diary situation yes. in this book because in addition to the sort of honest diary that she keeps for herself, her English teacher has assigned the class to submit diary entries, I think on a weekly basis. And I feel like this happened to me once when I was in high school or middle school, and I thought it was so weird. And I I teach a writing class, um, an undergraduate writing class. And one of my students, every day she comes in and she's like, one of her, I guess one of her other professors 
is making them turn in like their notebook. And these are all fiction students. So like they're spending a lot of time in their thoughts and in their journals. And she's like so angry that this other professor is making her turn in her just sort of like casual stories and whatever else she's doodling in her notebook. And it was making me think of Mia because Mia is in that same situation. I would hate that. I would hate to do that now. Really? Yeah. I think I would kind of like it. You do? Tell me more. So when I was in the fourth grade, actually, my teacher did the same thing. Like we all had composition notebooks and every morning there would be a writing prompt on the board. It would be like a fictional writing prompt, but we would have to write it. And then we would have to like she would call on certain people to read the story in front of the class. And it was actually one of the ways I kind of realized I wanted to be an author because I loved that class. Like I would always raise my hand to like read my story. I loved having that composition book. And it's actually funny because with my debut novel, uh, my fourth grade teacher actually came to my book launch. Like she found out. Yeah, she found out about it and she surprised oh me with like roses and stuff. It was so sweet. So I, I actually love the idea of being able to like turn in my thoughts like I'm super opinionated I love talking about just random things with people so the idea of like like write how you feel about this and actually having someone read it is like it's cool to me so I would I would love that (laughs) well we would have been friends in fourth grade because (laughs) my fourth grade teacher and also my second grade teacher did a similar kind of daily writing prompt thing but I don't remember I don't remember having to turn it in but I also I think I look back at those experiences and I'm like, that's what turned me on really to writing and Mm -hmm. also to reading in this more meaningful way. So we would have been friends. Yes, totally. But I I did like that that sort of device gave Meg, and now I can call her Meg because I've met her. (laughs) It gave Meg the opportunity to show these like different sides of Mia and show like the Mia that Mia is like putting out to the world versus who Mia really is. Mm -hmm. I actually love that about the format of the book as well because – it's like you have her personal diary entries, the diary entries she has to turn in. And then it's like random lists and notebooks. I mean, not notebooks, notes and her homework assignments. Like it's very much how I do things now. Like I kind of have like a bullet journal. So it's like yes. one page, it's like a to-do list. The next page is like thoughts. So like reading that back then, knowing that that's how she did it back then and how I'm doing it now, it's like a popular way that people kind of like keep their thoughts together. She was like ahead of her time a little bit. Mia is totally a bullet journaler. She is a bullet journaler. Yeah. That's such a good point. She would totally be on like Bujo. <laughs> yes, she would. She would be a, a bullet journal influencer. I love that. That's a great point. So let's talk about what is going on with Mia when we open um, Princess <laughs> in the Spotlight. Because as you mentioned, India, she has a lot going on. I just think her relationship with her mom is so fascinating. Oh I know you gosh. said that you have some strong feelings about <laughs> her mom. But at the beginning... Mia suspects that her mom is PMSing just because of the way she's behaving. Right. And I think you and I, like, we're both adults. So I, and I, I didn't really remember what happened in this book, but I pretty quickly was like, oh, Mia, like, she doesn't have PMS. She's definitely pregnant. Right. But the fact that the last line of her first diary entry is, oh, my God. Oh, my God. My mom is having my algebra teacher's baby. (laughs) It is so perfect because it's something that I think every kid kid reader can think about and be like what what am I supposed to do with this information yes exactly I would have been mortified it is mortifying and and Mia like immediately jumps to all these conclusions she feels like her mom's about to be a single parent because 
she doesn't think that her algebra teacher, Mr. Giannini, is going to like be able to commit. <laughs> she makes a lot of assumptions in the third diary entry. She says, why weren't she and Mr. Giannini using birth control? Could someone please explain that to me? What happened <laughs> to her diaphragm? I know she has one. I found it once in the shower when I was a little kid. I took it and used it as a bird bath for my Barbie townhouse <laughs> for a few weeks until my mom finally found it and took it away. And what about condoms? Do people my mother's age think they are immune to sexually transmitted diseases? They are obviously not immune to pregnancy, so what gives? This is so like my mother. She can't even remember to buy toilet paper. How is she going to remember to use birth control? And I, I have a few thoughts about this. The first of which I think it's great that Meg Cabot is like giving this kind of space to a straightforward conversation about birth control um, and about safe sex in general. This is a conversation that came up quite a bit in our episodes about All American Girl and Ready or Not. I think Ready or Not more so is about reproductive rights. And interestingly, it came out last June. So the timing of it was sort of eerie in that way. But um, I love that that Meg is just being like so straightforward about things like diaphragms and condoms. And at the same time, you have to laugh at the fact that Mia just like assumed that this was a mistake. Like right. maybe yeah. maybe her mom wanted to get pregnant. Like, and I, I think this speaks to the fact that even as seemingly like kind of, I don't know that I want to use the word progressive because that feels political, but I do feel like, you know, Mia lives in New York. Mm -hmm. Her mom's an artist. Mm -hmm. Mia is not entrenched in super traditional conventions of what a family is, quote, supposed to look like. Right. And yet she immediately assumes that her mom made a mistake and like meant to be using birth control. And so I think that is really like true of how we as kids process things like I mean, I guess that's how I felt when I was a kid. And I, like me, I was not raised necessarily with these super traditional ideas of what a family is supposed to look like. But my immediate thought would be like, well, my mom's not married, so she definitely didn't mean to yeah. get pregnant. And maybe her mom didn't. But I just, as a woman in my 30s, always speaking for the women in their 30s, I'm like, maybe this woman in her 30s just wanted to have another baby. Right. And, you know, it's interesting because I didn't even think about it that way. Like Mia, I didn't like necessarily grow up in like a super traditional household, but at the same time, you know, I am Southern. We do have like little, like we have like a traditional background. And so it's like, it's weird because it's like, I didn't, I grew up in a single parent household, but as I was reading it, at, especially at that age, when I first read it, I was thinking like, yeah, it was definitely an accident. Like, you know what I yeah. mean? So it's, it's interesting in that way. And then I just, I feel like, when you're young, you have ideas of how things are exactly supposed to look. Like, things are very black and white, I feel like, when you're younger. Yes. And so it probably didn't even occur to her that, you know, like you said, maybe she didn't want the baby. And I do like that Meg did put that about, like, the safe sex and stuff in the book. And it's interesting to me that I don't necessarily remember it from the first time I read the book. Um, especially because like when I was younger, I was so easily scandalized by things like that. So, but I love the books and I don't remember reading it and being like, oh my gosh, they're talking about sex. So I think it's the way that she talked about it. It made it like really approachable for like the younger reader, the reader that's not necessarily ready to talk about sex, but it kind of puts it there in a way where it's like approachable and it's like, it's good information, but it's not just like in your face for like the easily scandalized reader that I was like, like Gossip Girl. Oh, God. I read it before I was ready. Or I started reading it before I was ready. And I was like, I can't do it. But like this, it's like, you know, they're talking about safe sex and it, I love the book. So, 
While we're here, I do want to take a second to talk about the age range for this book because it was interesting. One of my listeners sent me a DM when she saw that I was reading this book and getting ready to record this episode. Mm -hmm. And I I posted a picture of the copy that I have. um, And I'm showing it to you now. Is that the copy you have too? It does look really young. Yes. More so than the copy I had when I was younger. Really, like a lot younger. And it has a really cool step back, um, which is, listeners, if you sort of, if if you can picture it, it has, when you open the front cover, there's like a cool graphic behind it that um, is colorful and pretty. And this listener said, oh, is that the edition that is meant for middle schoolers? And I was like, what, I'm not sure what you're talking about. And I told her this was the only copy that I could find that was newly in print. And I did a little bit of research. And I will say that on the back of the book and also in Amazon and anywhere else that you might find this information, the book is sort of coded for 8 to 12-year-old readers. But it's always been coded for 8 to 12-year-old readers. It was originally also like intended for 8 to 12-year-old readers, which is, of course, not to say that like many teenagers didn't read it. And I'm sure Meg Cabot assumed that teenagers would read it. But I thought it was just kind of interesting that this conversation happened because as you're saying, India, like there is there is content in this book that I think maybe some parents or teachers would be like a little bit concerned about their 8 to 12 year old mm-hmm. students or children reading. And yet there is also like this very approachable feeling about the whole book. So I just kind of wanted to get your thoughts on this age range question because it was something that was popping up in my DMs this week. Interesting. You know, like you were saying, because I have that same cover and now that she pointed out, like, if I didn't know anything about the series and I looked, I would, I will say that that cover makes it look like it's for a younger audience than what the cover I had. Because I feel like when I read it, they were like mass market paperback size yes. and it was just like a crown. So it, it gave it more of a feeling like this is for like the, like a preteen versus like eight, nine, you know what I mean? But I don't know. I, like I said, I feel like. I'm, I'm the perfect example because I really did feel easily like scandalized. Yeah, I was things. too. Yeah. yeah. So it's like, but I, I didn't necessarily feel that to the point where it's like, oh, I can't read this anymore. Like this is too much for me. And I honestly don't even remember like reading it now. I feel yeah. like I'm catching more things um, than I did when I read it then. So I feel like a lot of it maybe just went over my head. Like, yeah, I feel like at the age that I was reading it, I did I'm sure I at least knew about like condoms and stuff like that, but I don't feel like it was just so bad to the point where it was like, "Mm, I wouldn't recommend this, but I I guess it also depends on the child. Yeah. I do think that this redesign of the covers is like not, it's not what I would have gone with. Yeah. I don't think mm, it's a great looking cover, but I feel like it could be misleading um, in certain, certain ways. I mean, this isn't Mia. Like this is, it has this very sweet, look to it yeah. and it, it reminds me of other series that I read when I was younger mm-hmm. it almost reminds me of something that would be a good fit for that series about the ballet shoes series yeah there's a sweetness to it and Mia is many things but sweet she sweet is not, is not. It and that's like, okay do you remember the amazing days of Abby Hayes yeah it kind of looks like that in a way yeah yeah, I feel like we're trying to make me as somebody she's, she's not with this aesthetic. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah, and it also just makes it feel younger. I do think that, that these books 
can and maybe even should be read by people of all ages. Mm -hmm. But I just think it's interesting, like the way that the marketing is being done um, in this new edition. But let's talk more about Mia and her mom's relationship. I know you have some thoughts. Mia, when she first finds out that her mom is pregnant, is like scandalized and upset. And I'm sure there's a lot of feelings of like, you know, it's been the two of them against the world for all these years. Mia's world is now kind of turned upside down anyway because of this whole princess information news bombshell and it's just like I think when you're a teenager no matter how sort of savvy to the world you are it's like disconcerting to think about your single parent having this kind of relationship and again with your algebra teacher like let's not forget that part so she's initially very upset and she doesn't know what to make of it And then pretty quickly, there's this turn where she takes it upon herself to be the responsible one. Mm -hmm. And she never quite like vocalizes an excitement about the news, at least not until the end of the book. But in the place of that like sort of contempt for the whole situation, there's this level of protectiveness that comes in Mm -hmm. where Mia really like decides that it has, she has to be the one to make sure that her mom is eating right, that her mom um, is sort of like, changing her lifestyle so that she can have a healthy pregnancy. And I I think that that was a really smart device on Meg Cabot's part because, again, like, this cover is making Mia seem like the sweet, angelic girl who would all of a sudden be, like, so excited about her mom being pregnant. Mia's not doing that, but Mia is expressing her sort of secret fondness for her future sibling by being protective of her mom instead. Yes, and I feel like, like I said, I grew up in a single-parent household as well, so I do understand, like, certain aspects of their dynamic but for the most part the part that kind of like kind of like great to my nerves a little bit about Mia's mom is I get it like she is an older woman she's living her own life but I I felt like this with the movie as well she's like I feel like she doesn't think sometimes about how certain things will affect Mia or like she just kind of throws things on her and it's like okay now you have to kind of figure it out I got that from the movie as well and it's like because why were you even dating your algebra teacher in the first place like unless it was yeah. just like you know love at first sight I don't know like I get it she needs to be happy and stuff like that but it's just like why she already has so much on her plate and then you see things throughout the book where it's like remind mom to pay this bill or like you know remind mom to do this and why is mom ordering this and it's kind of like, oh my gosh, she does have to be the responsible one. Like you're reminding your mom to pay a bill. Like, you know what I mean? And I got that from the movie as well. Um, so I do feel like the movie kind of was a little spot on with how it portrayed her mom. Cause I did kind of feel like, oh my gosh, like give her, you know, something. I just feel like she's just like kind of doing her own thing. And then me, it's kind of like an afterthought in some situations. I agree with all of that. I actually, I'm having a new thought as you share all of that, because As I said, in the first Princess Diaries episode we did back in 2018, I was pretty hard on Mia. And I think I really struggled with the fact that she seemed so jaded um, and negative. Mm -hmm. And I I don't want to come off as though I'm saying that, like, every teenager has to have this sunshiny attitude about things. Like, I certainly didn't when I was a teenager. Teen angst is real. We are all in our feelings and we are going through that part of our lives. And so I think, like, yes, that's all very true to the way I experienced being a teenager. I wonder if the reason that I was struggling with it when I read the first book in 2018 was, like, a decade out, more than a decade out at that point from being a teenager, I was, like, frustrated that Mia was so negative and seemed so jaded when she seemed to have a pretty nice life. Yeah. But now that we're getting this different look at her relationship with her mom in this, in book two, 
I wonder if like part of that jadedness, part of that like skepticism about the world is tied into the fact that she's had to be the responsible one from a very young age. Like she doesn't have any shred of that like childlike wonder about the world. Yes. And it's maybe because she's had to grow up really fast. So I'm developing some more empathy for her based on this window into her relationship with her mom. Yes, I I definitely understand. Like she doesn't have that childlike wonder. That is something that um, I picked up on. And it's like at that age, especially like any girl, I feel like would want to have the news that they are a princess. And I always struggled with how upset about it she felt. Even the movies in the book, like I always like that would have been a dream for me at that age. So I did struggle with that. But I think with like her mom and even her best friend, I feel like there are just too many people in her life that also don't have that childlike wonder. So it's hard for her to kind of explore a side of her that may or may not have like developed. Because, yeah, like even her best friend, I feel like she didn't really take the news really great. And I just feel like no one is like in her corner like this is awesome like you know what I mean yeah so so Mia is invited or not really invited her grandmother uh has booked her on this major tv channel interview like I felt like it was very like a Barbara Walters parallel the woman's name is Beverly and she like interviews all the important people and Beverly is going to interview Mia about becoming the princess and Mia is pissed, and I get that because she didn't ask for this, and nobody asked her if she wanted to deal with this publicity. I think something I was thinking a lot about as I was reading this book was like, Princess in the Spotlight came out in 2001, so 22 years ago, and the distance that we as a society have traveled in terms of our like perception of having a platform, yes. it's like so far. Because it is. now, in 2023, teenagers are really used to the idea of speaking to a lot of people on TikTok, on Instagram, on YouTube. Like yeah. for a lot of them, it's a dream. And they're they're used to like creating content that's meant to speak to people, even if they don't know them personally. Mm-hmm. But for Mia, like that's completely unheard of. She's not prepared for this. And so she's really mad that she has to do this. And she gets sick before and she's like pumped. Like there's logs of her temperature and she's really excited because she sees her temperature going up. She's like, yes, like I'm sick. And then when her temperature starts going down, she's like, oh no, like am I going to have to do this? And I was so in touch with that because I I look back at it now and I definitely think I had some like social anxiety with school because when I would get sick, like of course it would be terrible that I have to stay home from school. But then once I'd had like the two or three days home from school and I realized that I would have to go back, Mm -hmm. I would get really stressed and not in a normal way of like, oh, I have to go back to school because I enjoyed school. Like I loved to learn, but I think I just didn't necessarily do very well with that transition of like being comfortable in my cozy place at home and then being back into this environment. Having to. (laughs) Yeah. And so I remember, I remember those like complicated feelings of like, oh no, I'm getting better. What does this mean? My mom's going to see that I'm better and I'm going to have to go back to school. And so that all was like so real. Yeah, for me too. I think the hardest part for me was like missing whatever happened when I was at home and then kind of trying to get back into my place and the friend group. And like, I missed the inside jokes that happened when I was gone. Like that was the hard part for me. Like kind of like the FOMO of it really. 
Yeah, for sure. But for Mia, the stakes are much higher because she doesn't just have to go back to school if she gets better, but she has to go, go be back interviewed to the, yes. by Barbara <laughs> Walters lookalike. I think like when you were talking about how different it is to have a platform and what that means, um, I think like some of like the core like issues that could come up with having a platform are the same, like even though the idea was so foreign back then. It's like with Mia, she's afraid that she's going to go in there and then say the wrong thing. And it kind of happened in a way like she was kind of like blabbering and just all over the place. And I feel like, you know, the advantage that kids today have um, with the platforms that you can kind of look at it, edit it out, like unless you're going live or something like that. But you have like the advantage of saying like, this is exactly how I want it to look. This is exactly the message that I want to send out. Um, but with Mia, it was like things were taken out of context and she was kind of, she didn't really have, like she could get a copy of the tape and the transcript, but she didn't really have that like say so and like how the interview was packaged and put out into the world the way that the kids do today. And I feel like that was something that she had to deal with, like with, with that interview and when, you know, Lily did something similar <laughs> and later in the book. Lily, again, is the worst. The worst. I'm shaking my head, which is why India's laughing. Um, <laughs> yeah, Lily sucks. Sorry. She just does. <laughs> the worst best friend. She's the worst best friend. So, yeah, Mia, like, kind of goes rogue in her interview. Mm-hmm. She blames it on the codeine because she's still not feeling well. And she, when asked about, like, her big news, instead of sharing about becoming a princess, she just outs her mom's pregnancy. <laughs> and I think by this point, she and her mom and Mr. Giannini are engaged. And so mm-hmm. she also is like, and my mom's getting married. Right. Which leads into another drama <laughs> because Mia's grandmother decides that because Mia's mom is tangentially part of this Genovian royal family, she needs to have a wedding befitting of a royal. And at this point, Mia's mom and Mr. Giannini have decided that they're going to get married at City Hall on Halloween and like wear costumes and be all quirky and cool. And Queen Clarice is like, yeah, no, like you're going to have a fancy wedding. And the references, like we just have to take a moment to say that like Donald Trump was invited to this wedding. I saw that and I was like, (laughs) oh my gosh, how times have changed. In 2001, like my cat was like, yeah, how hilarious would it be if Donald Trump were on the guest list? And I'm like, not so funny now. (laughs) Right. It's the same with Home Alone too. Like. Uh, he has that quick cameo and it's like, times have changed. Yeah, I don't know that she would do that. And I yeah, think Martha Stewart not. was also on the guest list. Mm-hmm. Like it was sort it was a really interesting snapshot of who was famous in 2001. Yes, yes. This is so interesting. And also like, I struggled with this as well. Like I know her mom was like definitely like alternative and quirky and things like that. But I struggled with the fact that she just would not want to have this big wedding. Like it was like, paid for and you can invite your friends like I that part I super struggled with throughout the whole book and I'm thinking like this looks this sounds great like I know um in the books that Mia's grandmother is like you know more like she's colder than she is obviously in the movies with Julie Andrews but like I still feel like I kind of would have wanted that like for my mom and for myself I struggled with that as well Similarly, I struggled with another assumption that Mia made. Like, again, Mia does have this tendency to make assumptions. And, and I, get, I, I get this because I think I am really quick to, like, want to protect people that I love. And so I just assume that I know what they do and don't want. And then I try to, like, get ahead of that so that they don't ever have to be involved. And Mia 
assumes right away that her mom's not going to want this wedding. Yes. And in the end, she's right. But I actually had a note somewhere in my margins where, like, I think there were a couple of chapters, a few dozen pages maybe that went by, where Mia was, like, internally thinking about how to keep this off her mom's radar when she didn't actually know if her mom would be upset about it. Yeah. And, like, that's not her job to take on. Like, I wanted to say to Mia, like, you don't have to handle this. Like, let the grown-ups do it. Yeah. And also, like, give your mom the opportunity to get a free wedding. Right. I felt that, too. I was like, why? You didn't even ask her yet. Like, it might have, you know, she might have just went along with it, even if it was just, like, not a big deal to her. It could have been something, like, just fun to do. Yeah. And, and closing the loop on the wedding storyline, there's a cute thing that happens at the end because Mia's dad, who is still alive in these books, for those who don't remember, in the movie, of course, Mia's dad has passed away. But in the book, the reason that Mia has taken on this mantle as the heir to the throne is because her dad had testicular cancer and so he can't have any more children. So he's still around. He's kind of in the periphery. He and Queen Clarice are staying at the Plaza Hotel for however long it's going to take them to like train Mia to become the princess that she needs to be. And Mia's dad and Mia's mom have like this sort of awkward relationship that you might expect them to have. But ultimately he helps Mia's mom escape the day of the wedding that Queen Clarice has planned. And so she doesn't have to go through with it. And as a child of divorce, who I was very young when my parents got divorced, there's something very sweet about being reminded that like, oh, your parents were friends. Like, yeah. Even if it didn't work out, mm-hmm. you know, whatever happened, happened. But I think I just, I felt this like glee for Mia that she had that moment of recognition of like, there was this core of love and friendship between my parents and he is here to help my mom get what she wants. I, I felt that as well. It was, it was really nice to see him help her mom. And then it was also nice to see him kind of like, prioritize helping her mom over like you know what his mom might say yeah I thought that was really nice I I felt that too like it was like a oh yeah (laughs) you could sort of picture them being because I think they were in their early 20s when they were together and when Mia's mom got pregnant with Mia and you kind of could see them like in their early 20s like being in love sort of this forbidden love scenario this like wealthy royal dating a quirky artist and like how they both kind of gave each other something different so I loved that but let's also talk a little bit about Mia's love life because we've talked about what's happening with the adults now Mia as we know is obsessed with Lily's brother Michael Moskowitz and she has a secret admirer in this book who goes by the screen name Joe C. Rocks I was reminded of how much I loved the movie Josie and the Pussycats. Me too. It was my go-to <laughs> sick day movie back to when I would get sick and my mom would take me to Blockbuster. I always wanted to rent Josie. Really? And the I was obsessed with the cartoon. Oh, yeah. I don't think I ever saw the cartoon. It, I, I was like it. really big on the live action movie. I don't even. I don't know I, if I saw the live action movie. I think it was like one time, but I was obsessed with the cartoon. It's probably really weird, but I do kind of want to go back and watch it because <laughs> I, I just adored it. But the, the phrase, you're the josiest girl, is thrown around in this universe as like meaning you're so cool, which I loved. It's just sort of like a pop culture reference. But Mia starts getting these mysterious messages from Josie Rocks. Took me right back to being obsessed with AOL Instant Messenger. Were you a teen of the AIM era? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. I miss it. Me too. <laughs> 
it was so great. I spent so many hours on AIM. Me too. I feel like my whole life happened on AIM. Yeah, it was it was it was actually pretty intense. Like when we got AIM, like people would argue and then we would talk, we would talk about it in school. Like it was it was like a double-edged sword. Like it was great, but it was also I feel like the start of like internet drama. Well, yeah, it was the first time that you were able to have like truly private conversations, yes. but also the first time you realized that like conversations that feel truly private aren't necessarily. Aren't, yeah. Yeah. It was a lot. So Mia's talking to Josie Rocks and the first note says, I know you will think it's strange receiving a letter like this. I feel strange writing it. And yet I am too shy to tell you face to face what I'm about to tell you now. And that's that I think you are the Josie's girl I've ever met. I just want to make sure you know that there's one person anyway who liked you long before he found out you were a princess and will keep on liking you no matter what. She doesn't want to tell herself that it's Michael Moskovitz because she doesn't want to be disappointed mm-hmm. if it's not Michael Moskovitz. Like, she also kind of wants right. to think that it's Michael Moskovitz, which is so relatable. Like, right. that, those those mental gymnastics that you put yourself through as a teen and also as an adult to, like, try to fit something into the narrative you want it to fit into, but also, like, protect yourself mm-hmm. from the disappointment. Exactly. I just, it was so perfect. <laughs> Yes, and it was so funny to me because reading this, I didn't remember if he actually was the admirer or not. Yeah. So it was a little surprise. And like closer to the end of the book, I started to really feel like it was him. Yeah. And so when I found out that it wasn't, I was just like, oh, okay. But then it was kind of like this thing of, I wish she would just ask him if it's him. But then also it's like, I wish he would just it, like, because you get the feeling that if, even if he's not the admirer that he still likes Mia so it's kind of like say something like I want them to say something but it's also I get it because one it's like relatable to have a crush and not say something and then I also like with my book there's a secret admirer aspect as well so it's like it's the same like why don't you just ask why don't you just tell so I get it but it's like I wanted to just go into the book and like ask Michael for Mia like are you the secret admirer do you like her yeah, spoiler alert, it, it's her biology lab partner, Kenny, yeah. who is not really even, like, in the book until the very end. Like, we get references to him in her bullet journal, like, assignment pages, but other than that, we don't ever see him. And as much as I loved the whole, like, instant messenger structure of it, I've got to say, I didn't really care that much about that part of the book. Like, really? I, I guess... I was much more interested in just like her fascination with Michael than I was with Josie Rocks. Mm-hmm. I just, it, it, I don't know. I couldn't get into it. Really? I, I get what you mean. I think because I was so much thinking that it was Michael. Yeah. So it kind of ties in. Like I, it didn't really even occur to me that it could be somebody else because no one else was really sticking out. Like, you know, because yeah. like you said, the only reference to Kenny that we have is like that he was doing her homework assignments which when you put that together it's like okay that makes sense he was doing her homework and stuff but I guess because we didn't really get to see Kenny in real life and kind of start to like him um that's why maybe you didn't care that much about that part of the story because it's like okay we only care about Michael yeah like give me more Michael right yeah I just like oh okay Kenny 
great. I guess we'll find out more about that in the next book, maybe. Yeah, it was. I just thought it was an interesting way to tie it up. We have to talk about Lily and all of the reasons that Lily is a terrible friend before we really start to wrap this conversation up. <laughs> Lily does a lot of weird stuff in this book. Yeah. Um, she like kind of falls in love with Mia's cousin who's in town for the wedding, even though she has a boyfriend, Boris, as we know. But like she helps Mia's cousin get a modeling agent and like disappears with him multiple times, which puts Mia in a really weird situation. The worst thing, though is that she is so mad that Mia did this interview with Beverly because she'd promised her like an exclusive first interview that she ends up like airing a bunch of other footage of Mia saying stuff about her grandmother that I actually thought Mia did not react to quite enough. Like yeah, there was a line that Mia said in that interview to the effect of like, oh, my grandmother won't care if I do this thing because she'll be dead by then. Yeah. Like I would have been so mad. Yeah, I feel like Lily, another, she's another person in Mia's life that, like, doesn't care about how things affect Mia. Like, it's, yeah. yeah, and Lily is very much, she's self-righteous, and she's to the point where she's almost hypocritical, and I feel like very much so that she feels like Mia is an extension of her. Like, she doesn't, like, she doesn't really, it's almost like she subconsciously tries to sabotage anything that Mia has going on outside side of Lily I've always gotten that vibe it's just I don't know if it's like downright jealousy or is it just like I just I can't put my finger on exactly what it is because even the part where she was trying to get Mia to like throw the eggplant out of the window and then Michael has to say like this is terrible press and she really like stuck to it like no I'm gonna I'm gonna post this like like, why? Like, it's like you're not thinking about... It's like there's so many people in Mia's life that don't care about how things affect her. And, but she cares about how everything affects, like, the people around her. So it's like, oh, it's just annoying. She doesn't have her best interests at heart. No, that's all really well said. And for somebody who has two parents that are both psychiatrists, I think Lily is really not in touch with her own feelings because you, in just a few minutes, nailed two very big things. A, I think she sees Mia as an extension of herself. And B, she wants to sabotage anything that's going well for Mia. And we don't really know that much about what their relationship was like before. But as we're having this conversation, I wonder if like before Mia found out that she was a princess, Lily was kind of like, if Lily had like a little bit more power in the friendship. I think so. And maybe she did because like she has this TV show and like she has a lot happening and now that Mia has this big thing happening in her life, she's worried that the power is going to shift a little bit. Yeah, I absolutely think that's what it is. Lily, Lily, Lily. Lily, Lily. <laughs> I do think maybe I was a little too hard on Mia in that first episode. Do you think that I, and I know you haven't listened to the first episode, please don't because I was <laughs> I a baby podcaster. <laughs> oh, I'm scared. Do you think that based on what I've told you about my analysis of Mia that first time around, like, do you think I was being too hard on her? Because I think maybe I was. You know, I feel like, I think when you probably read the book the first time and you made like your first analysis, you're probably looking at it from your like adult mind to like, why is yeah. this teenager doing these things? And then now you can kind of put yourself more in her shoes as a teenager, because I feel like as we're in our thirties, it's easy to look at teenagers and say like why would you do that why are you acting this way but then you know when you're a teenager it's like everything is so big you have all these emotions you don't know how to like categorize them and deal with them and so I think it's just a matter of like like the way that you look like the perspective that you took so maybe not like 
too harsh because I do kind of feel like, okay, Mia, like, you know, yeah. you're a princess. But at the same time, she is like dealing with so much. So I think it's just like the way that you were looking at different perspectives. I also think if I'm being honest, like those first few episodes that I recorded, I kind of wanted to come in hot. And so I maybe came in a little too hot on me. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> we all make mistakes. On the whole, India, how would you compare your experience coming back to Princess in the Spotlight for this episode to the memories you have of reading this book and maybe even the whole series when you were a teenager? Oh, well, one thing um, that really, really st- stuck out to me was the experience, like the actual physical experience of reading the book. Like I said, um, when I was younger, it would be like a rainy day. I would like eat breakfast, get in my bed Ugh. and marathon through the book. So now I'm like a mom of two young boys. So it was like I'm reading in the pockets, right? I'm reading in the pockets of the day. Like I'm like three chapters. OK, I need to like you know, get him breakfast and then three chapters. And it's like, okay, well, I'm not going to be able to read this until later on in the night because, you know, it's family time. And so it was just really interesting to me, like the, like my time, like I don't have like lots and lots of free time uh, to read like for hours and hours and hours. Like, of course I could maybe like kind of schedule a day, like a mommy self-care day or something where I'm like, I'm doing nothing but reading, but it's something that I just can't wake up and decide like, no one bothered me. I'm reading this book all day. That was um, definitely different, but it was kind of like a, it made me just kind of reflect. Like it made me kind of say like, oh, wow, look how long it's been since I've read this book. And then also it, it was very nostalgic for me. Like the book even smelled the same. Mm. Like when I went back and read it, like the pages. Yeah. And it was like, even, the, but the cover like kind of changed the the way I approached the book, like we talked a little bit about how the cover looked like before it was like a mass market paperback. It just had like a little tiara on it. So it made me approach the book with like a different, like, I don't know, mindset. The cover just kind of put me in a different mindset of what I thought the book was going to be. And this one, I also couldn't remember a lot of it for some reason. So I had like a little bit of surprise. Like I said, I didn't remember who Josie Rocks even was. But some things did come back to me every now and again. So, oh, no, I would say it was great. It was very nostalgic for one. Um, it was fun to look back and see things that I didn't even uh, like, like totally went over my head. Like when she talks about a lot of current events for that time. Yeah, I'm well, I'm glad we got to get back into the Princess Diaries series. Obviously, it's been a while. So thank you for choosing this one so that I could give me another chance. <laughs> Other than Princess in the Spotlight, what have you been reading lately that you would recommend to our listeners? Oh my goodness. So I have been doing a lot of one rereads and I've been kind of going into the classics a little bit because I really want some like fantasy. So I just recently reread The Hobbit and I recently reread, um, I'm working my way through the Chronicles of Narnia. So I just reread The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. So I'm like kind of in that space. I'm, I'm going to actually read The Lord of the Rings for the first time. I've never read it. Oh. Yeah. So I'm like, I'm in this type of fantasy space. So I would definitely recommend The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe because it's such like a, it's such a fantasy, like in the best way. I love it. We did an episode about that book, I think my first year too. So I, that's another series that I'd like to revisit. But yeah, you're, you're in the right mode to come on SSR and read a book too. It sounds like you're, you're in that groove in general. Yeah, for sure. You are. It's cozy. It's like a nice feeling. Yes. 
So as this episode drops, you have a new book coming out in two weeks on May 30th called Rhythm and Muse. Congratulations. Thank you. What can you tell us about it? Oh my goodness. So this is a young adult um, romance and it follows the story of Darren. He's very much an introvert. He's very shy. Um, He's very much in his head. He plays out things in his head a lot um, before he acts, which causes him to not do a lot of things. So his best friend, who is the complete opposite, is like, you know, you have this crush on this girl. You've been having this crush on this girl. You daydream about her all the time. Like, it's time to get out of your head and, you know, talk to her. Darren doesn't want to do that because he feels like, you know, he has one shot. And if she doesn't like him, you know, everything is over. Um, And so... She actually has a podcast called Dilly Dean, The Place to Be. Her name is Dilly. And she's running a contest um, for someone to sing the theme song of her podcast. The person who wins the contest uh, will be invited to her podcast and interviewed and all this kind of stuff. And so Darren is actually like playing around one day singing. um, And one of his friends actually records him singing and sends it into Dilly anonymously. Everyone loves it, including her. And Darren has to figure out is he going to like come out of his head and take ownership of this podcast and how he feels about Billy as the song gets big or is he just kind of going to let it fade to black and you know just forget about it (laughs) and so it's kind of like that like a coming of age getting out of your comfort zone type of story like you know fun and hijinks and things like that. Amazing. Well, we have a lot of YA readers in our community. So listeners, get yourself a copy of Rhythm and Muse. If you're listening to this before it goes on sale, you can go pre-order. We love a pre-order. Yes. And uh, we love to see podcasts being (laughs) mentioned in books also. So thanks for that. (laughs) No problem. (laughs) Congratulations on Rhythm and Muse. I'm so so excited for you. And it has been so much fun chatting with you. Oh, it's been been a blast. I've, I've had so much fun. Thanks, India. SSR is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR Podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind the scenes inside scoop, and some good old fashioned book talk. Find us at SSR Pod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR Podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast. <laughs>